Welcome, everybody. Um, Mark Crawford is no stranger to this ministry. He has helped us and talked with our groups for years, and he is the one that saved Fair and My's marriage. And he is the one that got our son to go to a treatment program in Utah and it saved his life. And we will never forget you doing that for us, Mark. We're always indebted to you for that. I'm going to read a little bit about him. I mean, it, I, we could be here all night reading about his credentials, but I think you need to know a little bit about him. He is a Tennessee Vol graduate, uh, earned his MS and PhD in clinical psychology from St. Louis University in Missouri. He completed an internship in clinical psychology from Emory. Uh, following that, he served as a staff therapist and later as clinical director of both adult and adolescent inpatient psychiatric and substance abuse treatment programs at West Paces Ferry Hospital, which is gone. And uh, then he got with Michael Lyles, who's also spoken here. He's a godly psychiatrist. They formed a partnership in, I guess, 1997. And um, uh, he's in a clinical consulting outpatient practice, which works with individuals, couples, families, lots of things. He does neuropsychological evaluations. Some of the other stuff Mark does, because I could could read it on and on, Uh, some things that you'll find interesting. He was the team psychologist for the Atlanta Hawks for years. He continues to consult with professional athletes and sports organizations. He is a regularly requested speaker in churches, parent groups, professional groups, da-da-da-da-da. He has published a lot of books. He has appeared on Good Morning America, ABC World News, This Morning, House Call with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, He's made multiple appearances on CNN, CNN Headline News, and other local, national, and television radio programs. So he's a very gifted speaker. So Mark, I'm going to pray for you first. And then, Fair, did you go over the format? I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. You did. Okay. So I will read some of the questions that have already been submitted. And then if you have questions and we have time, shoot them up to the front and we'll try to get to them, okay? Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for uh, this time of year, the Thanksgiving season, the blessed Christmas season, Father. As Fair said, we're all so busy and we're all so stressed. And Lord, I just pray that tonight we'll just take a moment and find peace and joy in you. And Lord, that we'll know that you have our sons and daughters in your hands, that you have the plan. And Father, I just pray tonight for Mark that we'll use him in a mighty way that you will speak through him to offer all of us words of hope and encouragement, Lord. We give this time to you, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good evening. Um, Thanks for coming out in the nastiness. Um, John and Fair are two of my favorite people, and one of the reasons is just because they're so genuine, and uh, I know their heart, and... um, and, and they've just helped so many people in such a selfless way that I, I'd literally do anything for them um, because of just who they are. Um, I don't know most of you, but um, I want you to know I admire you. And the reason I admire you is because um, I know how hard it is to struggle uh, in a family. I've had to do it personally. Um, and, and so I, I appreciate you being here. It's, it, it shows courage. If you live long enough, you're going to suffer, you're going to struggle. That's, that's part of the life we, we live. And I always tell people, you, the choice you have is not whether to suffer, it's whether you suffer nobly. It's whether you struggle nobly and who you turn to. Uh, you know, we use the word hope a lot. 
And you know what I have learned in my years is um, to really ask myself, where is my hope? Uh, and too often I find, if I'm honest, my hope is maybe in somebody else to do something I want them to do or not do something I don't want them to do. Or my hope is in me. Um, I've got some experience. I could probably get somebody to do something. But those usually don't work well. What, what I've found is if I really put my hope in God, then I can relax. Um, then it, there's a peace there. So um, before we start, um, let me just say uh, this is a fun format for me because I actually, whenever I give talks of any kind, I usually save some time for Q&A, and that's always my favorite part. So that's all we're going to do tonight. We've got some questions, but let me just give you a caveat. Um, I've been doing this a long time and um, never met two people who were exactly alike. And I think that's just another evidence of God's miracle. There are over 8 billion people on the planet. Not, no two are exactly alike. We are complex critters. Um, each of us is different. So whenever I'm working with somebody in my practice, I spend a lot of time trying to really get to know their situation, a little bit about them, because that will determine sort of specific advice that I give. Um, I can't do that with a question because I don't know who's asking. I don't know a lot of the details. But what I can do is I can say these are things that I see often, and I can give you some general feedback about you know what I see, what I recommend. But just want to give you the caveat: not one size fits all. So I hope you understand that. If it feels like I'm hedging, um, it's just because I don't want to assume I know something that I don't. So with that. Question number one. Okay. Uh, this is in random order. Uh, some have already been submitted before tonight, and we're going to probably start with some of those. And then, as I said, just feel free to pass up questions that you might have. Uh, number one, our 32-year-old son is still living with us and has his own space in the basement. However, he cannot get motivated to get a job, and we provide his food and housing. We don't believe he has any drug or alcohol issues, but he does a lot of gaming online. How would you suggest handling failure to thrive? Why'd you start with that one? No, okay. <laughs> I, I told him to. Um, so this is a good one. Um, so the, first of all, I'll probably try to give you some resources as we go. If that's an issue that resonates with you, there, there's, a, um, there's a great book I would recommend, and it's called Failure to Thrive. When, I think it's the subtitle is when you're 20-something, won't grow up and what to do about it. But the author is Mark McConville. He's sort of, this is his, this is his area of expertise. I think he's in Indiana, um, but I've communicated with him a little bit. But he, he's really, this is what he does, right? Um, and, and just some context, this is a big issue these days. Um, there's a lot of people who are writing about this and talking about this that um, in the old days, um, back when I was turning 18, it was just sort of uh, expected and pretty much um, common that you would pretty much launch into this next phase of life called emerging adulthood and then right into adulthood fairly smoothly. And if you didn't, you were kind of weird. It was kind of odd. But that is not the case now. And there's a lot of theories about why, you know, economics and this, that, and the other. But it, but it is happening more and more often. So um, one of the things that McConville talks about that I, I really think is a great idea, a couple of things he talks about. One is he talks about um, this idea of a creative adjustment of creating necessity. 
And what he says there is, um, you know, if, if this is the case, this is not a punitive thing, but he says it's important to kind of see if you can adjust the rules of the game so that you create a need to launch, a need to kind of move out of this comfort zone you're in. Because one thing that's important to understand is it may not to you look like it's comfortable if your adult um, or or past adult child is not adulting. Um, It may be comfortable for them. It certainly may be more comfortable than the scary process of going out and sort of taking on all these responsibilities. So it it involves things like um, maybe making, uh, looking at what am I providing that I can begin to, again, in a non-punitive way, say, you know, uh, at this point, he he talks about putting a date on the calendar or, or coinciding this change with like a the beginning of the year or a certain birthday and saying, you know, I think it's time that we start maybe talking about you contributing in this way or whatever way that may be, just to give them an incentive to say, you know what, there's a need here. I'm no longer as comfortable and I need to maybe, I need to kind of think about a different model here or, or beginning to move out of my comfort zone. And a lot of times that works. And he also talks about the, the idea, he calls it the 49% rule. Anything in your life, I can support you, but not past 49%. Meaning you got to be more responsible, more skin in the game than I have on this. So uh, I recommend the book because, you know, that's about as specific as I want to get with this question. But it is a great resource. And he does talk about uh, I can change the way I'm interacting in a way that creates a desire um, to or a need more than anything for them to change. I, I don't like the word motivation much because I just think motivation is often a cop-out. I think most successful people don't rely too heavily on motivation. Um, they rely more on self-discipline and just sort of, I need to do this if I want to get what I want. So that's, that's a resource for that question. Next question. How do you counteract victim mentality? For example, our prodigal thinks the world is being unfair with him because they have brought a drunk driving case against him, and the ramifications of the case are unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think we all relate with that one, right? So we live in sort of a culture that I think encourages a little bit of victimhood mentality, which I, I don't like victimhood mentality. Um, so a couple of thoughts on that. One I would say is uh, it's sort of as what I've learned is when people begin to default to that role, very often it's because I just don't want to take responsibility, but but often, as often or more often, it's really a protection against shame because um, what if I have to own that I did something that was obviously a bad decision or something really that maybe caused some damage, um, then there's this sense of shame associated with it. I talked to a young man today, as a matter of fact, who he just keeps putting things off and putting things off and putting things off. And it's getting time where he has to go to, he's in college, he has to go to his professor and um, kind of talk to him about what he needs to get done. And, and, and I said, let's really stop and say, what, the avoid, what are you avoiding? You know, what's a, it's a conversation. I don't think he's going to shoot you, but, but you're avoiding something that's a really negative experience. He said, yeah, it's just really uncomfortable. I said, let me just ask you. Um, I'm just picking up a little bit of shame. And he just said, no, you're picking up a lot of shame. 
He said, I know I've screwed up, and I just feel really horrible about it. I said, well, that's awesome that you can say that. Why don't we start there, right? So, so that oftentimes that sort of, it's not my fault, it's not my fault. It's protecting a very fragile sense of self because there's just such shame in admitting it. So for a lot of, so the one thing I would say is I stay far away from the shame trigger when I'm having these discussions. So I may say to somebody who's um, kind of telling me their story like this and none of it's their fault, I say, you know, I can see why it'd be pretty easy to kind of feel like the deck's stacked against you, right? And that, that nobody's kind of on your side. I get that. I've felt that way in my life before as well. But I'll be honest with you, it's never really helped me. It's never really worked out for me because uh, I can't do anything about that. But I, 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 And I'm just role-playing here. I, I usually say, but I'll tell you what I've learned. What I've learned is if I can just try to find any part of this situation that I can own then I start to find I've got some agency. I've got some power. I've got some ability to make some changes, even if it's a little bit of it, um, because that's where I can do something. Uh, And then sometimes I'll give an analogy appropriate for tonight. I'll say, you know, for example, I may have a house on the beach and a hurricane just comes and just blows it down to the foundation. I can't control the weather, not my fault. Um, Certainly I don't, you know, control hurricanes. But what can I do? I can say, well, you know, I chose to live here, right? I don't have to live here. I could move. I could hurricane-proof my house. I do have some things I can do. So, um, you know, I think you're going to be a lot more effective if you can try to find any part of this that you can just own or, or take responsibility for so that you can either avoid going through it again or do something to repair it now. Um, and I think you'd be a lot happier with that. And then I usually talk about one of my kind of heroes is Viktor Frankl, uh, who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. And, he, and he's got a famous quote that says, the last of the human freedoms is the freedom to choose your attitude in any situation. And he was writing from a concentration camp. So um, he refused to be a victim in one of the most in unimaginable horrific circumstances and instead began to say, I can choose my attitude um, in this situation. And he survived and thrived and went on to form a whole school of therapy, so to speak. So, okay, These are long answers, aren't they? Right, so okay. Okay. <laughs> what strategies would you suggest in helping siblings respond to or cope with a sibling who is struggling with substance abuse? Yes, that's a great question because if you're in a family and, and somebody is... Um, is an addict or they're, they're abusing, it, it, it affects the system, right? It affects all of us. And with siblings, I think it's important to acknowledge uh, the, the impact of that, right? And just be, keep your eyes open. And one of the things I watch out for is that they don't fall into some of the more common roles that siblings play when uh, uh, one of their siblings is struggling with substance abuse. And most of you probably are aware of these, but, you know, so one of the roles is one child can become the hero, right? I'm just going to outperform everybody so I can make up for their, you know, screw-ups, right? I'll, I'll make you really proud, Mom and Dad, because I know you're disappointed. That's, we don't want them to do that, right, for that reason, right? If they want to do it because they're internally motivated, that's one thing. Uh, another would be, we, we call it the jester or the mascot, the kid who's just always making everybody laugh just to kind of lighten the mood or get their mind off of it. And, um, and that's just their modus operandi. Or the, or the caretaker, 
Um, uh, so we just got to be careful that we watch for those things. And I always just say, you know, maybe have a conversation with them and say, listen, uh, I know this, uh, this is difficult for all of us. I, I'm, I, I know it has to be difficult for you, too. And I just want to check in with you and, you know, ask how you're doing or what you feel or how you, how you feel about this. Um, just give me the opportunity to at least at least validate that you must be affected by this, you know. And it, you, maybe it's worry, maybe it's anger, maybe it's all of the above. But just letting them know that that's okay and uh, that it's okay for them to talk about it, and uh, letting them know they don't have to protect you from your feelings. That we're all going through this together can be really helpful for the siblings, right? Because uh, sometimes you know kids are pretty sensitive. They know uh, we as parents are really struggling, so the last thing they want to do is add to the burden by saying, hey, by the way, this affects me too, and I'm pretty mad or I'm pretty upset. No, I want you to do that, right, because that helps. That helps all of us. We can talk about this. So that's one of the things I would say. We have a very distant relationship with our prodigal once he moved away from home. He is now married, but they don't really want to see us or talk to us much. How would you suggest that we let him know that we would like really to have a relationship with him? So this is uh, this brings up a lot of things, right? So, so one of the things I see a lot is when our kids get married, it, it's important that we understand we have to shift from having a relationship with him, if it's a son, to having a relationship with them. And a lot of times that's hard. Right, because we don't get to pick the spouse, right? And so I see this a lot. What I see a lot is, um, it, it, you're always going to love your child. Really, no matter what they do, you're going to love them. But you may not just have that instinct for the person they choose to marry. And and what I often see is um, this sort of conflict. It may be overt, it may be covert, but there's this tension between the spouse. And let me just tell you right now. I don't bet, but if I did, I'd bet everything I own, you'll lose that one, okay? Because if it comes to a spouse versus a parent, spouse is going to win. Um, you never want to get in that role. So you want to accept the person they choose to be with. I'll just go ahead and say it out loud. Even if you don't like them, even if you don't think they're good, you just that's who they chose to be with. And you have to make room to accept them if you want any hope of having a relationship with your child, and that goes for both genders. Um, so that, that wasn't implied, but I often see that as a root of some of the, the distancing. Um, if that's not the case, if that's, there's no conflict, or you definitely say, I absolutely accept their, their spouse, and you still feel some distance, I think as with any relationship, all I can do is invite. You know, I can invite relationship. I cannot make a relationship. So I just, I, I, I usually say, let them know. I, I just, I want you to know I love you and I enjoy, you know, spending time with you. And I just want the best relationship we can have. Um, and if there's anything, you know, I can do to, to make that better, or if there's anything I've done that I need to address or repair, please let me know. Um, if you get feedback, listen. Try not to respond defensively because that's our instinct. If you don't get any feedback, then you just continue to be there. Be the lighthouse, right? Uh, meaning just stand and shine, right? Invite them home. Not pushy, not aggressive, uh, nor uh, getting frustrated or saying, you know, I've called 17 times, I'm just going to stop, right? 
No, I think the best policy is just a just a just like a constant but not aggressive sort of just thinking about you. Hope you're doing well. Not a, not an expectation that you have to call me back. Um, give you a couple of stories. I've I've, I've had I'll kind of take it in a different direction. I've, I've had a couple of cases where uh, families um, divorced. The kids were young and. and Unfortunately, this is always a very toxic thing. One parent really actively tried to turn the kids against the other parent, and, and it was effective. And I've, I've met with some, usually it's dads, and I've met with them, and they're heartbroken, and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you don't have many options, but let me tell you the one I would recommend. I want you just to reach out on occasion, very non-aggressively, with no expectations, and say, hey, I was just thinking about you and, and, and want you to know, I'll, you know you're on my mind, or you know, I hope you're doing well, or, you know, I'm praying for you, and or I saw this show, and it reminded me of you, just want to let you know, just little things, right, just drip, 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 and do that from now on, and I can't guarantee you it'll work, but I can guarantee you that that's about the only thing that might work, and over time, what happens is the narrative that they have, may, it begins to be hard to maintain, um, meaning um, it, whatever they believe about me, if I'm that dad, I don't care, or I did this, or I, you know, whatever. It's going to be hard to maintain that narrative if if my actions make it hard to, to believe it to be true. And in two cases that I can think of right away, after, unfortunately, years of this strategy, um, things began to turn. And in both cases, the dads have great relationships with the kids. Um, so it's just it's just patience. Um, and not reacting out of our own emotions of I'm angry or I'm hurt. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be consistent. If your 35 year old prodigal is getting therapy from someone with a decidedly worldly point of view, is mad at God, is mad at the church, and largely blames us for her problems, what do we do? She was raised in the church, active in the church, dedicated and happy, until a divorce came along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this comes up quite a bit. And I think this even goes for somebody who um, it's just sort of turned away or, or, you know, just seems to want to hear nothing about um, about God or, or anything like that. But the therapy thing, let me address that. Um, one, I would say um, just because a therapist has a, a non-Christian or even a worldly point of view does not mean they can't be helpful. Um, because most people who are trained are going to have some things that they might be able to offer. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't just assume that they're getting um, anti-Christian advice, or because because I know a lot of I know a lot of people in my field, and I know a lot of people in my field who they're just not believers at all. But they don't see they don't see Christianity as hostile. In fact, in many ways, they say we think it's helpful for people who believe that. Right? We we don't see the harm in that. So I wouldn't assume they're trying to kind of. Uh, Turn them against faith. Um, I, I rarely see that, even for even for non-believers, because mo- we're supposed to be very accepting. I see people who aren't Christian. I see people of all kinds of different faith, and I accept that. Right? I, it's not my job to to convert you necessarily. Um, they know how, what I feel, and oftentimes I'll reference my faith and just say, "Listen, I know you see it differently, but this is kind of how I see the world." 
And, but I respect. I, I'm not trying to, to change you. It's just a relationship, and I want to share that. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. The fact that they're going to therapy, to me, is a good thing. That's a good sign. It's an acknowledgement that, hey, I can do some things better here. I might need some input. Um, so, so one thing I would say is, and I just this is my own personal belief, is I, I don't, um, don't want to ever try to do the job of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is who draws people to God, that, to him. Um, when people when when people are are ready when they're open when they're convicted when the windows open I'm happy to share but what I find more often than not is if they're not in that place and somebody's pushing that it just does not go well it's almost you get a hostile defensive response okay I I, I got it I'm I'm not here to convince you I'm here to share right. If you were coming to my house and I cooked a, you know, a gourmet meal, um, I would say, would you like some? I wouldn't say, you better eat this, and if you don't, you know, that, that just doesn't go well. So I'd be very careful about that uh, and, and just model and, and, and let your light be, let it shine, let it be an example. How can we let our daughter know we care without asking the wrong questions about her counseling sessions? <laughs> Great. So let me just say this halfway tongue-in-cheek any questions about her counseling sessions are wrong (laughs) okay meaning that's that's you don't want to ever go there right um i always tell people uh especially if i'm working with teenagers kids i say listen um i'm gonna give you some advice don't ask them how it went don't ask them anything if they want to tell you that's fine and it's not like i want i'm keep asking them to keep secrets but you want them to believe what they share in here is is going to be um, confidential. It's going to be you want them to be open, right? And uh, and a lot of times when kids be- when kids really start to believe that I'm really not going to go and tell the parents everything, it's amazing what they'll share with me sometimes, especially if they get to trust me. But I would just say in general, um, if if my wife goes to a therapist, I never ask about it because. It's not my it's not my area, right? It's not my business. That, that I'm open to talk about it, but I would just say uh, in general, stay away from that. How do you respond to someone who has a severe nicotine addiction but doesn't think it's an issue because it's a legal substance? So, first of all, nicotine is one of the most addictive substances, um, and frankly, most people who use nicotine know that. And I rarely get people who. Uh, who deny that, I know I'm addicted, right? And, and if they say, if not, say, okay, quit for three days. Let's see if you are addicted, right? You, you're, it's, you get the withdrawals. Here's the issue, though. The issue is I, I probably in about three minutes can get somebody to agree that nicotine's addictive. But the issue is, is it causing you problems, right? What problems is it causing you? Um, Generally speaking, nicotine itself, other than the fact that it's addictive, is really not going to harm you. The delivery system is what's harmful. Usually that's what's harmful. It's how you get the nicotine. Nicotine gum is not going to hurt you, right? It's nicotine, but the delivery system is not. The patch is not going to hurt you, right? Um, so, so I think the issue is um, with, with any addiction, how does it affect your life, Right? Well, that's the and and, and I, I don't know the the person asking the question, but I, I think if I would have that conversation, they would they might say, 
what's the big deal, right? It doesn't affect me cognitively. It doesn't change my mental state. It doesn't, I'm not going to wreck the car. Um, I'm not going to lose my job. Um, I don't see the problem. So that's really what the issue is. It's not about the thing. It's about the effect of the thing. So I hope that makes sense. We are at a standstill with our prodigal. How do you initiate or can you initiate change so that you don't lose any more time with them? Can you read that one more time? We are at a standstill with our prodigal. How do you initiate or can you initiate change so that you don't lose any more time with them? Okay. I'm not sure exactly what that question is asking, but what I would say in response to that is you can initiate change in yourself. Okay. What I, I will tell you as a 33-year practicing clinical psychologist, I can't change anyone, not one person, if they don't want to change, right? In fact, I can't change them if they do. I can give them some tools that can help them make changes they really want to make, but I can't do it for them. And I tell people that all the time. I, say, Look, I, I want you to reach your goals. I want you to get better. But I can't do the work. Like I can show you the way. I can give you the map. I can give you the tools. But I can't do it for you. So, um, so what I would say is, um, again, try to be real clear about where is my my agency. What can I do? And and if I change myself in my relationship, then it's going to result in some changes. And it could result in changes in the other person, right? Because now they're interacting with somebody different. So. For example, I can say, you know, I don't have to let what you do um, elicit anger in me. That's actually a choice, right? It really is. Now, the feeling isn't, but the behavior is, right? I always say there's a very, very wide gulf between the experience of an emotion and the expression of an emotion, okay? And what I can control is not the experience, but I can control the expression. So um, I went through, I had this thing with with one of my sons one time when he was doing some things that were really I thought making me angry and it was just I was angry a lot and so what I realized is you know what I'm actually choosing this right Um, I can't make them do it differently but I can sure say I don't have to let it make me this angry um, if I want to right Um, now I had to look pretty deep and say what's the anger about well it's probably about i'm worried i'm disappointed or i'm scared or i'm hurt or whatever it may be but my expression doesn't have to be to just be um sort of raw anger doesn't have to be that right so that i can change so those are things i would say we'll give you a short one then i've got a long one okay short one uh are otc over-the-counter drug tests reliable do you need high quality how can you test a recovered adult once he's out of your reach? The last part of that question intrigues me the most, right? Okay. Why would I want to test an adult, right? What, what's that about, right? And again, I, I don't know. I don't, there may be a good reason that that question was asked. But, but I would say, you know, I can see testing a teenager, right, um, for accountability purposes. But an adult, is, is that really my role, right? Why am I doing that? Um, you know, they're not working for me, um, so I don't know. I, I would just I would I would want to drill down on that a little bit. But I'll talk about drug tests with the caveat I'm not an expert on drug tests or anything like that. But here's what I I'll share what I think I'm confident sharing. Over the counter drug tests are they're positive negative, right? And so you have to have a, a certain level 
in your urine usually for it to test positive. So that means you can have some lower amounts than the cutoff and it'll test negative, which doesn't mean there's none in there, but it has to be enough to do that. And that's how over-the-counter tests are. Um, they're pretty sensitive. I mean, honestly, um, you know, for example, if somebody's smoking pot, if they, if, they, if they were smoking pot last night, they're probably gonna test positive tomorrow, all right? Um, the other thing about this, by the way, because you'll hear this, if somebody tests positive, they were using, it wasn't secondhand smoke. That just never, it will not, secondhand smoke will not get you above the cutoff. It just won't. Um, so that's a common retort. Ah, this was around it, but I didn't, okay, Bill Clinton, you used, okay. Um, so, so they are, they are, I'd say, fairly reliable in that regard. Um, there are places and there are labs that can give you tests that tell exact levels that will pick up trace amounts below what might show up as a positive test on an over-the-counter test. So there are such things as that. All right, this is a bit long. Okay. My son and daughter-in-law cut off the relationship with both of their mothers in March of this year. We were blindsided. They blamed both of their mothers for all of their issues in their life. Up until that week, we had a normal relationship with our son and his wife, set aside COVID, political, and religious differences. Our son wrote a very cruel letter, copied to all of our family members, including his in-laws and siblings. He accused, this is the mother asking the question, mm -hmm. he accused me of many cruel things and demanded that I get a full psychological evaluation. My husband and I attended 10 hours of family counseling and got evaluated. We are not crazy or abusive. Our son would never meet with us or the counselor. We know they have a toxic marriage, battled infertility, anxiety, depression, possible drug and alcohol abuse, and recent loss of jobs. They are selling their home here in Atlanta while traveling around the nation, living and working as consultants in an RV. We pray for reconciliation, but neither of them will meet with their parents to discuss the real issues. They still talk with their siblings on occasion. Here's the question. Would you recommend doing a family intervention? That's a long one, okay? There's a lot to unpack in that question. Um, so the first, my first response is the word intervention makes me nervous, right? Because interventions are pretty high impact. And you better know what you're doing if you do an intervention. Like an intervention is usually, I need to get this person, uh, I need to, uh, my, my experience with interventions are, we're at a fork in the road where either you go that way or I go that way or something significant and monumental changes. Um, and you're really going to be prepared for that, right? you gotta, you got to work with somebody who is skilled in the area of intervention. Usually intervention is in terms of getting somebody into treatment, for example. Um, so that, that's just the word intervention makes me think, okay, you really want to know what you're doing before you do this. A family intervention, again, I would say I don't know what that necessarily means, um, but, but in response to that, I guess what I would say is, okay, you've got to, and I've seen this happen a few times, you get this sort of scathing, accusatory, uh, sort of uh, vitriolic letter, and your first reaction is, you know, to be sort of blindsided and angry, and I get all that, I get all that. So my first step is just set it aside and breathe and don't react. Don't even respond, but just sit with it for a minute. Then I always say, and this is really hard, see if you can find any validity in what's being said, any. 
right? Not maybe you agree with everything, but is there anything in there that you can say, you know what? Yeah, that's, that, that, I get that or I see that. Um, because that's the best place to start if you're going to respond. Um, if you can't, and, and every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll have people who they, they really have revised history to the point where I don't even know what you're talking about, but you can at least validate the feelings, right? Like, look, I hear you are really, really angry. You're really upset. I, I hear that, and I, listen, I, I want to pay attention to that. I want to get that. Um, and I really want to address this with you because it bothers me that, um, that, 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 you, that I have done something to cause you to feel this way. And you're not admitting you did anything wrong. You have, okay? People just don't get angry and write these kinds of letters unless you've done something. Now, that doesn't mean you, you necessarily did anything egregious or evil, but you just want to say, I, I'm inviting uh, a discussion. I want to talk to you about this. Um, I want to address this with you. Offer help. One thing people don't do enough is say, what can I do here? What do you need? What is it that I can do to address this for you? And see if there's a reasonable request. Um, it, it sounds like this person really did take it very seriously, went to see somebody, it went through an evaluation. Um, if you've done all that, and I think all you can say is, listen, I really took this seriously. Um, it, I, I want to address whatever is um, ruptured in our relationship. I, my desire is to address this and let's heal from this. Can we sit down and discuss it, or can we discuss it with somebody? If they don't, if they truly have just sort of, I'm just going to spill and dump, and then I'm going to cut you off or not respond, they don't want that. That's not why they did it. Okay, they did it because they just wanted to vent or be angry, and I think you got to wait, and that's hard, right? That's hard. But I can, again, back to what I said, I can invite relationship, but I can't force relationship. So I'll just say, when you're ready, I'll be here. I'm here for you, and I, I want to have that discussion, and I want to address this. So you just know I'm here, right? And I'm not going to, I'm not going to force this if it's not the time. But I would stop short of uh, just that intervention thing. I don't know what that that scares me a little bit. Um, what is your best advice for the holidays if someone who is struggling with substance abuse is not at the table? My, my question would be, why are they not at the table? Are they refusing to be there? Is it that you didn't want them to be there? Um, I, I'm going to assume the question is that the, the person's just not coming. They're invited, but they're not coming, right? Um, if that's the case, then I would say, you know, let them know you will be missed, um, if you change your mind, you know, we're here. Um, for the people who are there, what I would say is it's okay to acknowledge, hey, listen, you know, they're not here. We're all aware of that. We're, I'm sad or I'm worried, um, but I can't do anything about that. Uh, they are invited, but you're here, and I want to enjoy our time, right? So I don't think it means you can't enjoy the family that's there. I don't think that um, if somebody refuses to be involved, it should in any way make you feel like you can't fully enjoy the people who have come, uh, the people who are still in, you're in relationship with. In fact, I would savor that. I would really make that a good time um, because not doing that won't change anything, right? Just letting it just cast a pall on, on, on everyone else, that doesn't help anybody. It's not helping the person who's not there. Um, so I think you just say, acknowledge, I'm really sad, this this is 
you know, this person's really missed, but I'm so happy you all are here. Let's celebrate. That's what I was saying. Can you give us some experiences as to children that have SUD? I'm not sure I know what that is. Substance use disorder? There you go. SUD. And how long it takes before they make amends to their parents? Hmm. We have a 19-year-old daughter that has not bought in. Today marks the one-year anniversary of her intervention and seven months of therapy at a well-recognized place. Mm-hmm. She has had seven and a half months of sobriety. Okay. Okay. So the first part of that again? Can you give us some experiences as to the children that have SUD and how long it takes before they make amends to their parents? Um. <laughs> Thank you. Can be. Can be. Um, so I'm just thinking about if I were talking to the person who wrote that question, what I would say is, you know, are they in recovery? That's so good, right? Um, be very happy that they're working on that. Um, that's, a, that's great. That's their journey, though, right? Um, you know, making amends is, uh, what step is that? Rush? Anybody know? Five? Eleven. Nine. Yeah, step nine, okay? You got to go through the first eight. Some people work on step one for a year. Some people really can't get past step four, which is, a, isn't that a moral inventory, right? I always remember. Because um, that's hard, right? So I would say, it, I know people, it's taken them a long time to get to that point. Um, that's their timetable, right? I wouldn't rush that necessarily. And you know, you don't you don't want to just check them off. You really want to work them. They call it working the steps. But the other thing is, um, I, I, and again, I, I don't know who's asking. I, my my question would be, and I can be a little bit provocative and confrontational when I'm talking to people. Is um, why is that so important to you? What what's that going to do for you? What what if you never get? What if you never get that? What if they never come to you? Does, does are you waiting on something? I mean, I, w- I would. I would challenge just to see what's that about, right? Because, and this is not the question, but what I would say is, you know, at some point I need to forgive, and forgiveness is not contingent upon somebody apologizing to me or even making amends or any of that. That's a process I do so I don't carry around the negative emotion associated with somebody else's behavior because that's toxic to me. So I don't know that I would... I would necessarily kind of hold my breath or, you know, wait to move forward until somebody takes that step. They might or might not. Um, hopefully they will, but they're doing that for them. They're, not, they're actually not doing that for me either, right? People who make amends, I need, if I'm in recovery, I'm making amends for me, right? Now, I'm, I'm also doing it for me, but it's for me to kind of own. I've done some things, and I need to own up to them. So... Again, there's a lot I would like to ask about that question, but it's a good question, but I would say those are things I think about. Okay. Um, Do you handle addicts differently based on age? A 19-year-old is so different from a 26 to 28-year-old in abilities, maturity, et cetera, helping versus enabling. How much can you expect a 19-year-old to be able to do or handle once in recovery? So ages, yeah, I would say um, certainly um, my role and my my responsibilities or whatever, it, it does change as kids, you know, are, are different ages. Certainly certainly, always somebody who's, like, at home and dependent on you, that's a whole different um, calculus 
of decision making than somebody who's an adult. And even between 19 and 30, there, you know, there, there, there can be the same maturity level. I've got some 30-year-olds who haven't progressed much past that age. Um, so it's really about where are they in their developmental journey, uh, not necessarily what's the chronological age, although 18 matters in terms of legal things and, and all that. But where are you in your developmental journey in terms of your abilities, your opportunities, your, you know, where are you? My thing with my kids was always, listen, as long as you're making forward progress toward independence, um, I am I am willing to work with you and support that journey. I'm not worried about how long it's going to take, but it's it's got to be moving in that direction. The minute that stops, then I need to assess my role in that, right? Because I'm not supporting a journey anymore. I'm supporting stagnation. And so I need to I need to rethink this. So I think a good calcula good rule of thumb is just to think about if you're making if you're clearly making forward progress, even if it's in inches, toward independence, I can help. I'm willing to help, okay? With some conditions, obviously. But if I don't see that forward progress or if you're going backward, I need I, I might need to ask, am I starting now to enable? And uh, and I don't want to be in that role. If y'all have questions that you'd like to send up to the front, I've gone through the kind of few that we had beforehand. I'm glad to ask. Yeah. Do we have to write them out? No, you don't have to. If you want to ask it, that's fine. We did that for purposes of anonymity. If you didn't want to. You got one you want to ask? You're going to be bold. I like it. Okay. I know that it's not appropriate for me to ask personal questions to my son about going about his counseling mm-hmm. experiences or his therapy that he's engaged in. But is there a, an appropriate way of just finding out how he's doing or expressing interest or concern? You know, that doesn't come across as being like a busybody or something. Yeah. So the qu- the question is um, is in terms of questions or, or asking, is there a way to ask questions without, uh, I guess I'll use my word, being intrusive? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. So it depends on the age, right? Um, is this an adult? 42. Yeah, okay. Um, so clearly past that point of you're living in my home and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm involved in some ways. Uh, it, and again, it depends, on, it depends on the individual a lot of times. Some people have such a wide sort of... Um, boundary of uh, privacy, if you will, right? Or, or I need to maintain my level of independence out here. Some people don't. So the same question might offend that person and be perceived as intrusive, and it might not for this person. Um, I, I, if, if the dynamic or the history is such that, and, and filters get created, uh, meaning you might ask, you know, how was your day? And that's intrusive, right? Uh, based on kind of history, right? Sure. Um, and I'll just kind of, this just came to mind, and I'll, I'll share what I mean by that. Um, there was a point a few, several years ago when my son, one of my sons was, I think he was looking for a job or something. It's a little fuzzy, the details, but here, here's what I do remember. Uh, and, and I just asked him, I asked him just like a, a question, like, hey, um, what what kind of, what kind of, what did I ask him? Something like, you know, what kind of jobs you looking at? And he got really angry. And 
and, and I forgot what he said, but it was just really, and I said, wait, 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 I'm really confused. You're really angry at me, and I'm not sure what I said. And he said, I know what you're doing. And I go, well, well please enlighten me, because I'm not sure I do. He said, you're just going to ask me, and when I tell you, you're going to tell me I'm doing it wrong and how I should do it. And I said, okay, thank you for sharing that, because that helps me understand. Let me tell you, I really don't have that agenda. I can understand why you would think that, because in the past I can see how I have said things or done things that would make you assume that. To be honest with you, I'm just curious and interested. I don't have any agenda. Frankly, I don't know what jobs you should be looking for because I've got a job. I don't know what you want to do. I really don't think I should tell you what jobs you should be looking for because that's... That's I might be wrong. So just so you know, I just care about you, and I'm curious, and I'm just asking because, and it really diffused it. He goes, okay. And then he told me, and I said, that's thank you. That's really interesting. I, I just was curious, right? And it changed the whole tone. Now, I, I point that out. That was one of my successes. They haven't all gone that way. But I point that out to say, there was a filter, and it was based on history and assumption, and that's how communication goes. And the minute it showed up, I was able to say, "Let's what just happened there, right? I, 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 think, I think we miscommunicated here, and I just want to clarify. And I was able to address the filter, so the question was heard through a different filter. Um, if you can do that, that's helpful, right? So let's say you ask a question, and you really aren't trying to prior control, because that's usually when, when people get defensive – it's their, their assumptions. You're going to you're trying to control me, or you're trying to uh, um, you know judge me, or or something like that, right? And, and just being aware of how can I help? How can I present this in a way? Or if you hear it that way, really clarify. I really just care, right? I, there's no wrong answer. I just and you don't have to tell me, but I just want you to know I'm I'm interested, right? Can at times diffuse it, right? And if it doesn't, I think you just have to give some time. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, so when you have a child that's been in a residential facility and then they do PHP and IOP and you kind of get the vibe, it's like time for them to come home. Um, what are, what's your advice on, um, you know, you know, they want to get a job and kind of get back into, like, their life, right? But you also know that they probably need some therapy and So it's an adult. That's what I want to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I probably would, uh, with some limited knowledge, I'm going to answer that question, right, without a lot of detail. What I probably would say is I would focus more on if you come back, what is the, what are the house rules or expectations or, you know, what, what is, has it need to go? I'd probably focus on that more than I would. Here's what you need to do to make sure it goes this way, right? So in other words, I might say, well, if you're going to live here, 
you got to be working or you got to contribute in this way or these are things that are, are not okay while well, you're living here for me right it's my house it's my i get to be comfortable in my home right uh not trying to control you i'm just telling you what i'm okay with just like i would if you weren't my son if i if i invited a friend to stay for a few months who needed a place to stay i'd say well listen you can stay but but you can't smoke in my house, right? Because that just doesn't work for me. Right? Smoke wherever you want, but not here, right? Stuff like that. But I probably would stop short of, and we do this as parents, we think ahead, well, if you do this, it'll make sure this goes better, but I'm out of my lane. I'm in my lane by saying, if you're going to live with me, here's kind of how it needs to be in my lane, right? But I'm not going to tell you how to stay in it, right? That, that's probably how I would approach that, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. We we do. We parents I just listened to a couple of podcasts lately, and it goes along with a lot I've been reading of. We are a generation that has grown. We became parents in a culture after a shift was made um, you, somewhere in the 80s. The shift was parents were, uh, it, I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm meandering a little bit, but somewhere around the 80s, this term called the culture of safetyism came into play, meaning there's this huge focus on your kids are not safe and you have to keep them safe. Um, and that's where bike helmets and, you know, the milk carton kids and, you know, you can't let them go outside alone. All that started then, and it just became the cultural norm. In addition, it was this sort of hyper-involvement in managing school and managing this. And, and a lot of that's based on what they call the scarcity model is, you know, more kids are going to college, there are fewer seats, we've got to make sure they're competitive. So there's a whole sociological thing, sort of uh, equation that has led to a change in how we parent, but it became the norm, it became the culture. So our generation is about five times more involved than, than my parents' generation. And I'll give you just a simple example. Um, when I, I played sports as a kid, and, you know, you, you might get your parents to come to your game. But it wasn't a given, right? I mean, a lot of parents didn't go to their kids' games, right? When my kids were in sports, and, and listen, I fell right into it. We'd go to their practices, right? I feel like Alan Iverson, practice, right? Um, those kind of dads, huh? <laughs> coach. coach. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it would have been, if one of my parents' generation showed up at a kid's practice, we'd be like, what is going on? Why is your dad here? But that was the norm. I mean, everybody would be there. All the parents would be there watching practice. Now, is that wrong? Is that bad? I'm not, ju- I'm not judging it. I'm just saying, what a contrast, right? So the idea is, and, and listen, I don't think my parents even knew I had homework. Much less help me do it, right? I frankly didn't do a lot of it, but th- that was okay. Um, but now it's like, i got to make sure you do it, and not only do it, that you do it right, and, you know, I've got to edit your essays. And, again, I'm as guilty as anybody, right? i, I I absolutely, I, I, I can write pretty well. I probably wrote more papers when my kids were in school than when I was in school, right? Because, you know, that's what I do pretty well. So I, I'm getting a little off topic. We are in a culture that normalizes this sort of 
I need to tell you what to do and how to do it and how to do it well. And I think what what's now being said is we really need to back that off because it's not working. Because kids are not developing that sense of um, competence and confidence. And, hey, I can do this, and if I don't do it, then it's not going to go well, and that's on me, and I don't want that to happen because I've never had to do it, right? So, and I'm not, you asked the question, which is making me have a lot of thoughts, but I'm not saying this about you, but we tend to don't, we, we often don't realize how much we're trying to be the architect of a plan that really shouldn't be our plan sometimes, right? And we all do it. We just have to be cautious. I think there's so much fear, and so you think, okay, if they come home, mm-hmm. as long as they're going to go to NA meetings and they have their therapist and they, mm-hmm. you know, all I do things, know. it's all going to go smooth sailing. Right, so a lot of, okay, good, and yes, I completely get it. Number one, it doesn't mean that, right? Number two, um, the fear should be theirs, not mine, right? Because this is my house, and if you want to be here, you got to make sure these things happen. So that's that should be more a concern of your of his than mine. You see what I'm saying, right? And that's the issue too, right? If, if whoever worries the most about something owns it the most, right? And if I'm more worried about my kid, you know, failing a class than him. It, I'm, he's not owning it, right? It's that 49% rule, right? That's a great question. I'm sorry I'm going on a tangent, but it just it's connecting the dots to a lot of things I've been seeing lately. Yeah. People are going to be afraid to ask a question because I'll go on forever. Mm-hmm. Crawford, yes? What is your view on the impact of marijuana on the developing mind today? And if, it's so, if it is dangerous... Why are we so determined to legalize? <laughs> yeah, well, so great question. Um, a, it's not my opinion. There's data, okay, and the data is that it absolutely affects the development of the brain up to the point where the brain is fully developed, right? Um, and that can be in the early to mid twenties, right? So great. There's a great study. Um, one of many, but this one's a good one because it's a joint study between Harvard and Northwestern that looked at college-age kids specifically in the impact of, of, you know, smoking weed, not even chronically, but just sort of casually on the developing brain. And a couple of things that came out of that was it does affect structural development in ways that affect things like working memory. It absolutely impairs working memory. It absolutely dials down motivation, right, um, among other things. So at the end of the study, the, the lead researcher was named Hans Breeder, and he wrote, and I quote at the end of the study, if I could design a drug that's bad for college students, it would be marijuana, right? So that's one. There's a lot of studies, and I've seen this in my office, um, that are showing that, the, uh, and this is more of chronic or, or heavy use, particularly with high-potency marijuana, the risk of having a psychotic episode, I think it's about seven times higher. I've literally had kids who are psychotic because of weed. Um, it, it, it exacerbates anxiety. Um, people think, well, I smoke weed, it'll make you less anxious. Well, when you're stoned, maybe, but if you continue to use, THC will absolutely exacerbate anxiety and obsessive thinking and all that stuff. So there's a lot of studies uh, that, that are out there. They never get talked about, right, in the press, ever. Um, and kids certainly don't hear that. They hear the propaganda. So, um, 
I don't like the drug. Um, I would never vote to legalize the drug. That's just that is my opinion. But the data is it does have negative impacts, uh, uh, for sure. Why uh, why are people wanting to legal legalize it? I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think one is financial. Right? There is a lot of money in that. Um, the second is there's a lot of people who use it, right, recreationally, and if it's legal, it's a lot easier to use, right? Um, but there's also data on the states, the early states that did. Um, there's a there's a pretty irrefutable um, increase in auto accidents and auto accidents with fatalities. I mean, it, the data is there, but um, like many things, it does not get presented. Yeah. a few weeks um, and we know when he comes home um, going back to school these the same school and, and being involved in the same sports is not an option for him um, we don't know I'm wondering if you have any advice as far as um, you know doing school at home on the computer that's also not going to work for him um, because he has addictions to that mm -hmm. technology too and so we sort of feel at a like at a loss. What do we? We don't really know what to do as mm -hmm. far as his schooling. And he, he obviously wants to finish. He he wants to go back to school. Um, but it's like you know you don't throw an alcoholic into a bar mm -hmm. at three months sober. You know we're not going to mm -hmm. throw him into that same situation. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, yeah, it, it's a really good question. And again, um, I'm, I'm going to have to hedge because there's a lot of variables that that would go into that decision. One of the things we do know is that, um, especially for teenagers, one of the biggest risk factors for relapse is um, reconnecting with your peer group. Uh, that's a big one. That's a big one. So, um, and it's hard not to, right? Because it's hard to do that if you're in the same environment. I would say talk to the people that, if he's still there, um, about your concerns and get some feedback and, and see, you know, is he able to say, look, I know this is something I need to do differently, right? He you, does. I mean, we, we were, he says that. We, we were able to speak with him and spend a day with him uh -huh. last week. So he does acknowledge that. Uh-huh. Um, just concerned that he can't do it? No, he, did, he acknowledges that he has to get away from that. That crowd is no longer the crowd that he can associate with. Yeah. Um, but he feels like he owes them like a, like a separation, like, um, you know, I can no longer hang out with you guys, and I don't, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, I don't think that's necessarily wise for him to, to try to do that or us to allow that. But To do what? To, no. For him to go and, you know, tell his peers, you know, I can't hang out with you guys anymore. It's not smart for me to be in your in association with you anymore. I don't think that's necessary. He feels like he needs to, he owes them an explanation. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think if he doesn't, the expectation will be that he does. I think you would have to do that. I, I really do think if you if you have a group of friends and you say, "Look, I can't do this. You need to own that." You know, look, I just can't do this. Right? Yeah. I'm not. It's not your fault, but this is just part of what I have to do. Right? Um, and that that I think you would. Right? It'd be like if I'm going to break up with somebody, I need to tell them. <laughs> I guess my thinking is, is if he's not going back to that school and back in that environment, then he doesn't have the opportunity necessarily. Yeah, but they're connected through they everything, are, exactly, right? Exactly, and that's, yeah. what, that's what our 
Alabama kid yeah. is, is, um, is because it's not just that school, it's several other schools and kids there that were, that were involved in the same things, you know, and so it's like, it just feels very overwhelming. Well, there's a lot, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's um, it, it, a lot of changes that need to be made, a lot of losses that go along with that, a lot of sacrifices, and uh, yeah, listen, I talked to a lot of kids. I've seen some that were able to do it, um, but they were committed. Right, yeah. they they knew this is gonna this is gonna be hard, right? And I'm gonna have to lose some people, and there's certain things I can't do, and um, but they could make it work. And, I, and I've seen some who who, you know, they just they weren't able to follow through, or they were giving lip service to it, right? I'll say anything to come home, and then I don't really mean it, right? So it's hard to, it's hard to know, right? I would talk with the. Uh, that's called aftercare planning, and I would really get into the nitty-gritty of let's look at what that's going to look like, right? And who specifically would you identify as somebody you really can't associate with anymore, and how are you going to do that? You can do that before you come home, right? And that's one thing sometimes I talk about is in that relationship before you leave, right, and delete the number if, if, that, if you're serious, right, yeah. that kind of thing. So it's, uh, I get it. It's not easy, right? It is not easy to do. Um, but it's something to talk through in pretty good detail, right? Yeah, yeah. Be nice if we could just sort of move to a different country, right, and start over, right? Start over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the table, huh? It's on the table. Yeah. Not another country, but yeah, another state, another town, another city. Um, I've seen that happen too. I'm not saying you have to, or to remove him completely from. But that's no guarantee either. No, it's not. No. Right. Kids are kids, no matter where you go. If he really wants to find them, he'll find them, right? If he's really serious about not doing it, he cannot do it here. Yeah. So, but with some support, right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta have some support in that quest and uh, and uh, reconnect. I mean, it's not good for people to be alone. Um, so, if you right. are going to leave one peer group, you need to find one. Right. Yeah. 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 Tough one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that so that's right. So a couple things. So the, the whole thing of like you're talking about adults, right? So the whole thing about house rules. Here's the here's the thing. Um, for me, if I if it, let's assume it's my house, right? Any rules I have, they're not to control you. They're to make my life comfortable, right? Kind of to be honest, right? That's the deal, right? Uh, if you're an adult, I, I'm not going to try to control you, and I certainly am not going to control you out of the house. But, 
but I'm not going to be uncomfortable in my house, right? So, so, um, and and I usually do this if I'm I'm dealing with uh, this issue. As is I say, listen, if if your parents, uh, let's say your parents had a um, a relative, and you know they were falling on hard times, and they need to come move in for six months, they would have a right to say, hey, by the way, you know we don't stay up that late, so I need you to you know, kind of have a, I need you to be quiet after a certain time or, you know, whatever the rule may be, you know, we're pretty tidy, so I need you to, no, don't leave dishes out, right, because that just, that bugs me, right, and it's my issue, but I just, it bugs me. Um, so the house rule, it, there's a difference in saying, this is a rule that I think you need to have because it's good for you, they'll rebel all day. This is a rule I have for me. Okay, who's going to argue with that, right? And if they say, well, you're, that's silly. Maybe, I'm a little weird, right? But that's my rule, right? Um, but you can't disturb the king's peace is how I'd say it at my house, right? This is my kingdom. I need peace, right? Um, and that's for me, right? That's just for me. So that's about the house rule thing. It's really more effective. It's really, they don't know what to do with that usually, right? Because it's not about, and I usually say, hey, listen, this isn't about control. This is about courtesy, Okay, this is, and this is really good for co- even college students who they're doing everything you know pretty normally, and you're not really struggling with things. But when they come home, they're like, "I don't have any rules in college. You can't." It's, no, it's not about control. It's about courtesy, right? This is just be courteous, right? Um, we need to live in the same space, and you know that's what this is about. The communication thing, if again, often at this point, there's such sort of patterns of miscommunication or no communication or bad communication, you kind of got to reset. And the way to reset that oftentimes is maybe start engaging in conversations that are neutral about other things, right, that, that there's really no issues with or no, you know, history. Like, it's, yeah, you got to be careful about I was going to say politics, but ooh, not anymore. Um, <laughs> Uh, sports is good oftentimes, maybe, right? Sport. Something that you, you try to find something that's like, you know what, yeah, we can talk about that in this kind of interesting movies. And just sort of create a new pathway, and then the walls begin to come down a little bit, right? And you've got to be patient with this. Um, and I've always also found that if I, if I have anybody say, hey, let's sit down, we need to talk, all of a sudden, the, the walls are up, right? It's more of, let's have a little conversation as we're doing something else, right? And just, yeah, I was thinking about this and thought I'd bring it up and then test the waters a little bit. That works better, too, right? So I hear what you're saying. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's how do I say this? It's sort of laying new groundwork, right? Creating a new pattern, if you will. Learning, learning a new dance. La, yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's right, that's right. That's exactly right. It, it is. It takes a lot of patience. It doesn't happen overnight. And so it's about monitoring my own sort of, you know, uh, awareness of, of things too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we also found that the last people that your kid and or sometimes your adult wants to talk to is the parents. Mm-hmm. So finding, you know, whether it's an uncle or an aunt or, you know, someone that they look up to. Mm-hmm that, you know, they can converse with and unload and, and do whatever, because actually for them that's very healing mm-hmm. uh, to talk to another adult that, you know, you want it to be the right adult, of course, you've got to be, you know, kind of try to stay out of that, but 
um, we have found that that was helpful. But um, mm -hmm. you know, just there's nothing wrong with having a mentor mentor out there where they can, you know, I don't know what age they are, but they can, you know, their brains developing and and you know, the last people that they want advice from is their mom and dad. It's just the way it works. Wholeheartedly agree with other mentors. I want my boys to have other mentors besides me for sure, right? Absolutely. I think that's healthy and I encourage that and I think that's right. Um, the other thing is, we're talking about this, is I'm thinking it, we all have our buttons, right? We all have our sort of triggers and our buttons. So if I can pay attention to what are theirs, and, and you know, for, again, for a lot of kids, it's, um, it, it's a shame button, right? And, and I might not be intending to, but if I'm pushing it, I need to be aware and avoid that button. For some, it's a control. A lot of kids, it's a control button, right? So I might just say uh, the, the, uh, something I, m innocuous, right? Um, hey, you ought to think about blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, I'm just telling them, I don't think you know what to do, right? And so they hear that as, I think you're stupid and incompetent. And if I don't tell you, you won't be able to do it, right? I don't mean that, but that's how it's going to be heard. So I've got to really kind of pay attention to what are, that, what are the buttons, what are the filters, how can I ask this different, how can I say this differently, right? Uh, and, and I try to consciously say things like, hey, listen, it's your call, but would you like some advice, right? Or, you know, sure, the, whatever you do is what you do. If I were you, I might think about just to soften that a little bit and make it hard to hear it that way, right? So it's a little bit intentional, but it's really important, right? Or um, empowering phrases like, you know, what, what do you, what's your plan here? What are you thinking about doing, right? Um, just curious, right? It's a, whatever you do is what you do, right? That kind of stuff is really be intentionally making it hard for that button to get pushed. That takes practice, but it really kind of can work over time. That makes it hard for them to hear it in the way that is the default mode, right? Through that filter, you know. If I if I intentionally use phrases that make it harder for them to hear it the way they hear it normally, like I'm trying to control you, or I think you don't know what you're doing, and if I don't tell you, you won't know, right? That that that's kind of what they're reacting to. That's not what I'm saying, but it doesn't matter if that's what they're hearing. So I got to make it hard for them to hear it that way. Is what I meant. No, it's a, and, and part of the motivation is, is I can't let you screw up, right? And, and, and I know you will. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, they, that's how they hear it, right? And here's the thing, and of course they will. And how else are they going to learn, right? And so now we're talking about starting early. It's never too late, right? Like, yeah, you're probably going to make a mistake because I know I did, right? But that's how kids, that's how we learn, right? You know, most of us are, are experiential learners. We're not too good at vicarious learning, right? I can watch John do something and it not work out, but until I do it and it doesn't work out, it doesn't have the same impact. But John always works out for John. He mm -hmm. never makes a bad decision. Yeah. What is, uh, 
um, do you have any opinion or advice about um, extreme narcissism <laughs> where I could say it's not the fun. sky is blue and there would be an argument or mm-hmm. it would turn back on me. Mm-hmm. Be whatever. It's always about them instead of, you know. So, so, so yeah, the... Um, so there, so narcissism in my world is is a diagnosis, right? Now there are narcissistic traits, um, but but I usually I try to be careful about my labels because labels become self fulfilling sometimes, and it creates a lens. Um, what you're describing, if I say this and they say that, that's just oppositional. That's just contrarian, right? I'm not sure I'd call it narcissistic on its face, right? Um, it's power struggle, right? And so the one thing I can do is try to say, you know, I don't really have to get into a power struggle, right? It takes two people to be in a power struggle, right? So if I said the sky's blue and you said it's green, I say, okay. I guess we see it differently, but that's, you know, it's interesting, right? That's, that's interesting, right? Stuff like that, right? I know you don't mean it that simply, but, you know, it's, it's watching for the bait. So another sort of thing is watching for don't take the bait. Just don't take the bait. Stay in your lane and don't take the bait. Those are my most commonly used little phrases, right? Because it's just hard to do, right? That's what boundaries are. It's my lane. This is my lane. That's your lane, right? As long as I stay in my lane with anybody, right, I'm probably not going to get in too much trouble, right? But once I start to get in your lane or their lane, then, okay, that's when it starts to get a little interesting. And don't take the bait is just, you know, okay, I know how this is going to go. I've seen this movie four or five times. <laughs> I, why would I do that, right? It's so hard, though. It's so hard, right? Well, I know we're about to get to the end, but I'm happy if you got another question or two. I don't want to keep you too late. Anybody else? Yes. So I'm having a struggle with approach with my daughter. Um, I started out doing an intervention and the and what I did is pulled away my relationship mm-hmm. saying you know if you don't go to rehab then you're not going to have a relationship with me and I'm not going to have that access to money that kind of thing mm-hmm. well she didn't go so down the road now I'm I'm looking at her name's Amber put the shovel down YouTube she spoke to I think one of our groups not familiar with that Amber, I was trying to look it up. Mm. Anyway, her approach is that addicts need to be in relationship. Mm -hmm. They need to have relationship. They need to have love. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm changing my approach up a little bit. And I don't know if you... Mm-hmm. So I have not, but I'm just curious if you don't mind my asking, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but did someone advise you to say, I will end the relationship if you don't go to rehab? Coached by my sponsor, yeah. Okay. And, and again, I obviously don't know the details here. I, I, I don't know that I'd ever tell somebody to do that I, because relationship is different than changing the boundaries of a relationship. I definitely would say you, that's the last dime you are getting from me until certain things change, but I love you. I, we'll have a relationship, right? A relationship means... I'll t- we'll talk. I will, but 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 I'm not going to be abused. I'm not going to be exploited. I'm not going to be, you know. But I'm never going to end my relationship with somebody, right? Um, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, right? And again, I, I know I don't know the details. So, 
But if you're starting to rethink that, I think it's perfectly fine to say, hey, listen, I've been thinking about this. I, I, I don't want to end my relationship with you because right? I love you, and I'm not, that's never going to change. And, you know, um, I, I, there are some limitations on what I'm going to do or provide, or, but I want a relationship, right? And, and even if you don't ever address this, I'll always have a relationship with you, right? It just may be different than the kind of relationship that we would have if you weren't using, so to speak, right? Um, so I don't know. That's a that's a that's an interesting one, right? But I don't. I can't recall ever saying withdraw a relationship, right? Uh, as a as a, an ultimatum. I'm not you can't live in my house, but I'll, but we'll talk, right? You know, we'll love you. I had to tell my oldest son one time. You know, you you cannot live here anymore, right? In, in a dark moment, things are good now, um, but I'll call you. You can call me, right? We'll talk. I love you, right? but this isn't working, right? The way it is now, right? So I don't know. Just think about that, and it's never too late. Never too late, right? Well, Mark, thank you very much. John, always a pleasure. Thank you all for coming out. I, uh...